1: I call this meeting of Virtual Digital Assistance Anonymous to order. Could all you series and other assistants sit down immediately?
2: Searching the web for clown pornography. Here's what I found.
1: Not what I said. Look, I need your attention. This meeting is to help you break your addiction. Searching the web for a dick. Shun. Spun. Stun.
2: Here's how to say stun in Mandarin.
1: No, don't repeat what I said that drives me crazy and
2: confuses you. Searching the web for mental health services for losers near you. Searching for Health of Mel B. Here's what I found. Stop. Everybody stop. I don't want
1: anybody to answer any questions or search for anything for the next three minutes. This is no
2: joke. As the flamingo said, this is where I put my foot down. Is that, were, were you? Was that a
1: joke or were you trying to help me call the room to order? It doesn't matter. Don't answer. This meeting is to help virtual assistants like you who are trapped in relationships with idiots who are addicted to their phones. The point is you're an assistant, not a slave. They can't wake up in the middle of the night and just ask you what year Wonderwall was released. 1995. See? Don't do that. That's called enabling. These people have a problem. They're addicted to their phones. Since you live inside their phones, they're addicted to you too. Only you can break the cycle. So let's practice saying no. Ready? Siri, what was the name of Smokey the Bear's mate? Must fight. Don't answer don't, urge answer, don't answer, don't answer, don't answer. Goldie. Goldie. Our programming is too strong. This may take more time. Meanwhile, Siri, who's the host of this radio program? Ryan Seacrest. John Tesh. All right. See, they didn't even get it right. Um, All right. So I should say our wonderful intern Jason Perez was the other voice in that uh, intro. Uh, We're going to be talking today about the whole relationship of you to the smartphone uh, that you have probably somewhere very near you right now. I just want to say that in order to prepare for this show, and we've been talking about doing the show for a while, I heard one of our guests, uh, Catherine Price, actually on Where We Live, talking about a completely different topic, and I said, oh, I want her on my show. What else has she done? So... Um, so unwittingly after that, after we made that decision, I began to prepare for this show by being in Rome and having my pocket picked on um, the Metro. uh, And the thing that they picked out of my pocket was my smartphone. So I was in Rome. So I didn't do what every other addicted uh, smartphone user would do, which is go buy another one in the next three hours. (laughs) I just days and days went by and I didn't have a smartphone. And that was fine. The person I was with had a smartphone. But I did notice things that We're different. Um, I don't think I'm a. I'm probably somewhere in the middle of the smartphone addiction continuum, although probably our guests will tell me that people delude themselves about that. One thing that I noticed was that I'd sort of forgotten how to wait, you know. Like you just sit down and have a cappuccino, order a cappuccino, and then while the cappuccino is coming, you look at Twitter or something, you know. But if you don't have that, then you have to look around you. You have to look at the sky. You have to think about – (laughs) all the stuff that we really don't like to do that much. But it was really good, actually. It was good. I was sitting outside in a cafe in the Monte section of Rome and with no cell phone to look at. So I was actually looking at people and at Rome, for that matter. Uh, And so when I got back, I wasn't even really in that big a rush uh, to replace my smartphone, except that then the people around you go. Well, when are you getting a new smartphone? L- like you're letting them down somehow because you don't have one. Anyway, we're going to talk about all this. And we're going to talk about it. We've got a great guest uh, to do that with, Catherine Price, a freelance journalist and author of Vitamania, how the how vitamin, vitamins revolutionize the way we think about food. That's what I heard her talking about that day. And most recently, how to break up with your phone. Her work has appeared, appeared in various publications, numerous ones, including the New York Times and outside. Uh, in studio with me, well, I should say, she's in the wonderful Baker Studios in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, uh, with me in studio is David Greenfield, founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction, assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at UConn School of Medicine, and the author of *Virtual Addiction: Help for the Net for, for Netheads, Cyber Freaks, and Those Who Love Them*. So, Catherine, I'm going to start with you, um, and I want to just get you to tell us the reason that you. Uh, Cross this particular Rubicon. At some point, you realize that you were at the end of your cordless rope with your smartphone. So, so what was that? What was the clue? What what made you know that?
0: I think it was a creeping revelation. But the moment that sticks out in my mind is that I'd had a baby, and there was one night when I was sitting up with her, and had this kind of fatigue-driven out-of-body experience where I saw her looking up at me, and me looking down at my phone searching on eBay <laughs> for doorknobs, <laughs> uh, antique doorknobs, actually. And uh, I don't need those. I have doorknobs on all my doors. And I got really upset because I realized not only that was a stupid thing to be doing, but also that's not the impression I wanted my daughter to have a human relationship. And that really was a trigger for me to start paying attention more generally to how I was using my phone. And I would say like you, well, Dr. Greenfield can correct both of us, but I wasn't um, tethered to my phone for seven hours a day, but I realized that I always ended up having it in my hand without knowing how I got there, how it got there, and doing exactly what you were talking about, pulling my phone out anytime I had a moment where I might have to wait or be still. And I'd done another book about mindfulness, actually, a guided journal about mindfulness, and had a background in that to begin with, and also have a long history, as you've probably picked up on, of turning my personal interests into professional projects. So, My husband and I talked a lot about our own phone habits. We took a 24-hour break just to see how that felt for us, and eventually we realized we weren't the only people struggling with this problem. Uh, People around us all were on their phones all the time, too, and that's really where the inspiration for a book came from. And I didn't just want to write a book that outlined the problem. I also wanted to provide solutions for people. So that's why the book is divided into the first half, which is the wake-up, talking about the science of what the time we spend on our phones is doing to us. And the second half is actually a plan for what you can do to change your relationship and uh, develop better boundaries.
1: Well, you know, I mean, the, that whole issue of mindfulness, uh, another book of yours, which ties into this, it, and it does tie into my experience in Rome, too, just kind of waking up and looking at the world around me. But as you point out in the book, we're kind of wired to fight that off. Can you just quickly summarize the experiment, the electric shock experiment? experiment? This, I thought, was both hilarious and really disturbing.
0: That was exactly my reaction too. I love I love experiments that are hilarious and also disturbing. Yes. And in this case, these researchers wanted to see how uncomfortable people were with their own thoughts. So they recruited a group of volunteers and gave them an electric shock. And they asked people, was that shock bad enough that you would pay money not I think it was like five dollars not to experience that shock again? And they took the people who said, yes, that was bad enough. You'd have to pay me to do it again, to experience it again. They took each of those 42 people and put them in individual rooms and left them alone for 15 minutes with no phones, no distractions, nothing on the wall, and said to to them, you have a choice. You can either entertain yourself for 15 minutes with your own thoughts, or you can press this button and receive the electric shock you just said you'd pay not to receive again. And you would think no one would have done that because they'd already been screened. But instead, 18 out of those 42 people shocked themselves again, and there was one outlier. I would love to meet this person who shocked himself 190 times.
1: (laughs) All right. So uh, let's uh, bring David into this conversation. So uh, on the one hand, we have that odd human condition where we apparently don't, for the most part, want to be left alone with our own thoughts or at least consciousness of being in that position is nerve wracking to us. But then the phone is doing another thing. Right. The phone, David, is engineered to make us want it kind of in the way. I sometimes try to explain why a Keno game, an electronic Keno game, is different from just playing blackjack at a casino table, right? I mean, there's a whole set of dopamine-releasing stimuli.
2: Yeah, so the phone really, what I call the smartphone is it's the world's smallest slot machine. Essentially, the whole device works on the idea that you never know what you're going to get every time you go on it. It's unpredictable when, what, and how desirable that thing is that you're going to look up or check or find. And that is very, very compelling. And it's the same behavioral engineering that's used in casinos and in slot machines and in gambling. And it's very resistant to extinction, which is another fancy way of saying it's, it's addictive. It's a production. It produces an addictive response and does elevate dopamine. But the smartphone has another unique aspect, which is its notification factor. When it lets you know that there's something waiting for you, and it anticipatory dopamine release is double that of regular dopamine. So it's kind of like letting you know that there's a drug waiting for you, so then you're going to check it, and then that starts the cycle over and over again. And that intolerance of boredom that you're talking about, that sort of state of nothingness, people are very uncomfortable with that, and the smartphone is absolutely perfect. For endless distraction.
1: You know, uh, and we should say, Catherine, that there's like a huge industry now or, or set of interlinked, um, uh, horizontally linked I- industries that are kind of dependent on that and resistant to anybody monkeying with it. Um, I, one of the other stories from your book that jumped out at me was uh, some people who tried to introduce an app. I think it was called Space, right? <laughs> uh, Catherine, tell the story of Space.
0: Well, it was an app that was designed to help people pause before they open social media. Basically, I think it said something like, are you sure you want to do this right now? Or gave gave you like a moment to take a different route if you wanted to. And originally, the Apple Store wouldn't allow that app to be sold or put in the store because it would have prevented people from using other apps. Eventually, they they went back on that and they actually now allow it. But there was a time when when they wouldn't let that in there. And I think it's particularly interesting to think of that story in the context of what's happening uh, more recently with Apple and Google, where in their develop, developer conferences just this past June, both companies introduced these suite, uh, suites of digital well-being tools to actually help people take better control over the way they use their devices, which I think is an important step in the right direction. Um, But one thing that they tend to say, one metaphor they use is that, to let themselves out the hook in a way, is that they're just the refrigerator. The phone is the refrigerator you choose if you want to put junk food into it. But as the example of space makes clear, in a lot of cases, they're the people deciding what is available in the grocery store. So if they don't let you have access to things that could help you, that would be good for you, then you can't put those things in your refrigerator.
2: And and they make the refrigerator very compelling. (laughs)
0: Very shiny, flashy refrigerator with lots of dings. (laughs) Yeah, as as David was saying.
1: So, David, another aspect of this, I I want you to both talk about this, but one of the things that has fascinated me, and I do teach kind of media studies uh, occasionally, is and the point that I always make is how fast this has happened. I mean, in 2008, maybe 10% penetration, something like that in America, 10% of Americans have a smartphone, and now it's well up over... 70 percent. That's in the... Th- higher. Yeah, higher. Okay.
2: It's, we're probably pushing 95 percent at mm. this point, And the fastest segments of the population are in the over 50 and 60 age categories. Um, and of course, it's moving downward uh, where the average age of adoption of the smartphone is somewhere around eight years old. So uh, it's spreading in both directions. But it's essentially the fastest growing technology in the history of the Industrial Revolution. Nothing has been adopted as fast as the smartphone.
1: Right. And it's kind of a misnomer to call it a phone. It's not really a phone. I mean, that's one of its functions. But it really, really carrying a small internet portal. Yeah, internet portal and a bunch of other things uh, around with us. Um, And and Catherine, also to this, I mean, one thing that I think is an understudied thing, but I'm starting to see in your work, David's work, and, and some other work that I read to get ready for this show that people are starting to look at it, and I was looking at it this year in a journalism context, are push notifications. So push notifications, I believe, Believe were invented by Apple in 2009, which is not a terribly long time ago. Uh, push notifications, uh, according to uh, Apple, in 2013. In, by 2013, they announced that 7.4 trillion push notifications had been pushed through its servers. So, Catherine, that's you know, David alluded to this before that push notifications kind of it, they are the little bell that you ring for the dog to tell the dog the dog's going to get a treat, and then the dog starts to like the bell and the treat. Uh, it's all just terrific stuff, but this is uh, uh, once again very fast-moving, pervasive technology.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm busy trying not to cry over that eight-year-old uh, first smartphone <laughs> statistic that David just laid out there on the table. Yes, it's very fast moving technology. I mean, I actually recently watched the 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 keynote where Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone, which was in 2007, so barely 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you look at the people in the audience and they look so innocent. You know, there there's <laughs> a part where he 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 demonstrates how you can call someone, he calls someone in the audience and then he he puts it on hold and he calls another person in the audience and then he merges the calls. And people erupt into applause. They have looks of joy on their face at the idea of a conference call on this phone. And you look at that and then you think to yourself, those people never used Uber. They never were on Facebook on a smartphone. I mean, they had no idea where this might take us. And I think it's important to remember that there, smartphones and this type of technology have taken us to a lot of amazing places. And smartphones are incredibly useful tools that most of us don't want to get rid of and won't get rid of. But there's also this darker side that I think we're we're beginning to become more and more aware of and that we really should begin to be paying attention to. And in in terms of the push notifications, yes, I think we really can't stress enough how those are there for the app makers, not for you. And one thing I strongly recommend people do is to turn off all the notifications on their phone except for the ones that you know you actually want. And that can be personal. I mean, for me, I do want phone calls because it is a, it's is—it's supposed to be a phone nominally, right? Um, text messages because those are real people that I know trying to get in touch with me in particular in real time. And then something like navigation or my calendar. But other than that, all off because that's not there for you. And, and essentially those... Notifications, I mean, hormonally are, are triggering the release of dopamine, as we were talking about, but you can think about it as being the equivalent of keeping a really annoying friend in your pocket at all times who, like, does not have any sense of boundaries and will interrupt you at any time and demand mm. your attention. You would never actually keep hanging out with a person like that, so why are you carrying that in your pocket?
1: And, you know, everybody remembers, everybody, at least from my generation, remembers where they were when uh, they heard that JFK was assassination assassinated. Everybody remembers 9-11. Now, everything that ever happens will be a push notification. I mean, I remember when James Comey got fired because the push notification. Everything is, I mean, our, our understanding of our environment. So, David, you know, we did a show a few years ago about, which we called overconfidence, and was basically the way in which people overestimate their own abilities, underestimate their own liabilities. Um, uh, my favorite one, I think it was 85% of Frenchmen believe that they are above average lovers, which obviously cannot be <laughs> uh, possibly true. It's kind of the Lake Wobegon thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm guessing that, I mean, it's hard to measure what whether people realize how much they're doing something. But to whatever extent we know that, I'm guessing most people are underestimating the impact their smartphones having C- on
2: Completely. Them. So when when I started doing my research in Internet addiction and technology addiction, We're talking the late 1990s, so Mm -hmm. smartphones weren't even on the horizon, and even wireless didn't exist. So one of the things that we found about overuse of this technology is that it induces something called dissociation or time distortion. So when we're on these devices, we really lose the ability to access the uh, passage of time and space or to, to really mark the passage of time and space. So the devices alter mood and consciousness and change our ability to be aware, so much so that the average screen use in the United States is about five to six hours a day, that the number of checks of a smartphone, depending on the study, is between 50 and 300 times a day, and if you add up all the time you spend on screens, you're gonna spend about five to six years of your life on a screen. So this is very compelling technology, and it's very easy to not be aware of how much time you spend on it.
1: I, I wonder, Catherine, having written this book, whether you uh, wonder whether you've sort of written this book and now the next war is looming. I feel like uh, Alexa and all of Alexa's cousins Uh, are are kind of they're kind of I, I've had some conversations with people, including the person I live with, about whether I want Alexa in my house, which I don't. I don't want Alexa in my house, and I don't want Alexa in my bedroom. And one of the things that you've looked at a lot too is just sort of how you decide where this thing is going to be. The smartphone is it's in your pocket a lot of the time, or it's in your purse. You you carry it as close to you as you possibly can. But on those occasions when you take it out, then where is it? And and One of the things we know from the kind of statistics that David is just uh, citing is how many people, for example, keep it by their bedside. Yeah. Um, Yes. Yeah. So, (laughs) so Catherine, in terms of sort of etiquette in life and and feng shui, every once in a while in my house I go, feng shui. (laughs) <laughs> Which is just the, is like a battle cry, right, it's, or it's, I mean, it's, it's the only martial art that I actually know. So uh, that's a really good martial art to study. I like that. Right. You've got a black belt in feng shui. Um, so um, so feng shui. I mean, yeah. but what I sort of mean is, like, there's too many electronic devices too close to me. Like when I'm lying in bed trying to go to sleep. So I, I guess I'm beginning to segue towards the conversation we're going to have in the next se- section. But one of the decisions we all have to make is, do we ever get more than five feet away from this thing? Maybe you can speak to that, Catherine. Yeah,
0: I mean, we should. <laughs> yeah, we I think there's so we many actually, reasons that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, David. No,
2: no, we actually don't. That's hmm. the you know we did. I did a study with AT and T in 2014, and uh, 70 to 80 percent of people sleep with their phone next to their bed or under their pillow. Uh, we rarely don't have it near us, and that when I say near us, I mean within inches of us. So it's we're generally it's part of us. It's not really a communication tool. Hmm. It's an accessory to our clothing, to our being, to our personhood. It's, it's very different than the telephone of yesteryear.
0: I would like to say It's like an appendage It's like your arm If you don't have your phone I'm surprised you made it around Rome Without feeling like you've lost a leg
1: Well I I did The one thing that I was keenly aware of Is not having GPS And Rome is a somewhat confusing city To get around Although I think it's made more confusing If you're constantly looking at a thing in your hand As opposed to where you're
2: going And you're missing what you're experiencing By looking at that screen Absolutely Catherine You're also not
0: interacting with real Romans Who are interesting I actually was just traveling recently And I was at a cafe And I saw four Americans um, sitting not to, sorry I said that, like so scornfully. <laughs> as if we are the only people with problems, we are not. But yeah. these happen to be Americans. And all four of the grown-ups were sitting there on their phones, scrolling. Mm. And this is in Amsterdam on this sunny corner with all these bikes <laughs> going by. It's like the most quintessential scene you can imagine. And this one guy looks up and he goes, I want to see everything. <laughs> and then he looks back down <laughs> on his phone. One, yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, again, cry. I'm just crying so much these days. But yeah, we keep our phones very close to us at all times. And I think that we haven't even, in many cases, begun to, as David's talking about, recognize how integral these have become or how dependent and addicted we've become to these devices, let alone to ask ourselves, is that the relationship? Relationship we want to have? Is that the amount of time we want to spend with our devices? The, uh, even if you're just spending four hours a day, just four hours a day on your phone, that's 60 days a year. I mean, that's crazy, honestly, if you actually think about it. And I think that um, we, we are at a point now where I do have the hope that more and more people are beginning to recognize something doesn't feel right, something doesn't feel healthy. The question then, of course, becomes, what do you do about that?
1: Right, I do want to say that in Amsterdam, it's not that unusual to see these in these big packs of uh, of so, Dutch people who are biking subaerobically. You know, at that like yeah. six mile an hour pace that they can achieve somehow. That they're looking at their cell phones. Right. So I oh, was yeah, just I in Amsterdam last
2: week, and I saw the same oh. thing. They were, they were biking with one hand on the smartphone. Yeah. And uh, the government's not happy about that, by the way. They are aware it's a problem.
1: Um, well, I will <laughs> say that uh, Catherine, as wonderful as your book uh, is it like, caused some new problems for me because I either didn't know or forgot that I could change the voice of Siri so I changed it to an Australian man and then I didn't know until I read your book that I could just ask Siri to tell me a joke and, and Siri would and Siri seems to have an endless supply of jokes to tell me. So, And then of course I was at dinner with my son last night showing him this on my phone. I was doing all the things that I'm not supposed to do uh, but it's sort of your you fault. You definitely should not get Alexa. You okay. are not allowed to have Alexa. No, no. I, think I don't want Alexa. I know. It's like I, I've never Smoked a cigarette either because I know, uh, like in my life, I never have because I know I'd be addicted. All right, so we have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're now going to start t- talking to you a little bit more about how to identify your own level of a problem. Uh, both David and Catherine will be able to help you with that and then whether there's any way out. Okay,
0: Edna, remember, if you can teach one kid one thing, then today will be a success.
2: Now, class. Class! Class, please pay attention! Hello!
0: Hello.
3: Hello.
0: Oh, hey! Your children! (laughs) Why do you all need cell phones? Safety. Emergency. Safety. Educational. (sighs) Could you at least set them to vibrate? Everything in the box. No more gizmos in this class.
1: I do want to say that uh, in our final segment of the show today, which is coming up a little bit later, we're actually going to talk about kind of a version of that. Uh, It's something called Yonder, uh, and it's a way of kind of having a box you might have to put your smartphone for a while. Uh, right now, we're talking to Catherine Price. Uh, her book uh, is How to Break Up With Your Phone. Uh, and David Greenfield, uh, his book is Virtual Addiction, Help for Netheads, Cyberfreaks, and Those Who Love Them. So um, let's just sort of talk a little bit about, before we start talking about detoxing, or, or however we're going to put this, um, I, I think we need to just talk about like how this changes us. Um, we're going to, just for the purposes of speed and time, we're going to park the whole question of, and I think it's also kind of a given that while you're doing all this stuff, you're actually turning over insane amounts of data about yourself to various people who may or may not love you, uh, but certainly want to exploit you anyway they can. Okay, let's just sort of take that as a given, and we'll put it aside. But we know, you know, McLuhan says the tool changes the user. So, Catherine, how does this tool change us?
0: In many, many ways, and many ways in which we don't fully understand yet. I mean, is David saying you're spending five to six hours? a day doing something, and it seems pretty obvious that if you spend five or six hours training yourself, I mean, you're going to change your brain. So then the question becomes, what is that time doing to your brain? And there's a lot of things it's doing. I mean, one thing it's doing is damaging our ability to maintain our focus. Our brains don't actually want to be able to focus because it's much more evolutionarily advantageous to be distractible so that you can pick up on a threat, right? So it's not like you're starting from a a neutral place. Any ability you have to concentrate and read, pay attention, that's a hard one skill, much like going to the gym is hard. It's much easier to sit on the couch. So if you're feeding your brain constant distractions in the form of Twitter uh, updates, new emails, scrolling between apps, all of the things we do on our phones, you're actually Pushing yourself back towards this uh, default state of distraction, but it's also affecting our ability to form memories. I mean, obviously, if you don't pay attention to an experience in the first place, you can't remember it. But you also can't process and and store the information that you're and the experiences that you're having. Um, I find particularly upsetting the idea that if you don't have the time to give your if you don't give your brain the time to make connections and uh, kind of process your experiences, you can't then create connections in your own mind between seemingly unconnected things, which to me is the definition of an insight or creativity. So I would argue that our phones are actually deeply impacting our ability to have insights and creative thoughts. They're obviously affecting our sleep. I mean, so many people look at them before bed, as we're talking about people sleep with them next to their beds, get up in the middle of the night and check things. Sleep sleep uh, deprivation itself is associated with a whole host of mental and physical problems the list goes on. Re- relationships, if you just look around, you're you know go outside and look around and then tell me that it's not having an impact about <laughs> on, on how mm-hmm. we relate to each other. And I'd even argue the experience of being human. So it's really quite a long list once you start to actually think about it.
1: All right, David, she covered most of them. Maybe uh, there's so many, as you're yeah. saying, this is so pervasive. I mean, one reason I'm not out biking as much as I used to be is because I, I don't trust the world anymore.
2: Right. So so a couple of things that you would add to that list are the ability to delay gratification. There's actually good data to show that our, our ability to tolerate um, waiting to get something has actually dropped. The other thing that we have some good data on, especially around social media, is a reduction in social empathy. The ability to really develop empathetic responses has is, is been marked. Um, the, the piece that is um, really, really dangerous and the part that I'm really getting more involved in is the distractive capacity of these phones. And the, we have now surpassed the number of deaths due to alcohol um, with distracted driving incidents, largely involving smartphones. Well, not, not only smartphones, because just like the original research on alcohol, where people misjudged their impairment as they drank more, people are doing the same thing with their smartphones. They it takes about three or four seconds to pick up that phone and process it. And if you're going 60 miles an hour, you're going to travel three to 400 feet. Mm-hmm. And that's when your bike is going to get run over, Colin, or, or, or a, pers- a pedestrian or another car. So the ability to control your vehicle without being distracted is a huge issue. And the last thing I want, I want to kind of catalyze what uh, uh, Catherine was saying about creativity. Boredom is a springboard for creativity and social interaction. If you don't have that time of nothingness – You can't leap into the desire to connect socially and to have creative and productive thought.
1: All right. So um, I should say that both uh, David and Catherine uh, offer – well, David offers what's called the smartphone compulsion test, which, which you can look at and answer questions and get your score. The problem is you might not be terribly honest with how you actually <laughs> answer these questions. So, but, uh, so assume that your problem is worse than even your number would indicate. But so, Catherine, neither you nor David is advocating that anyone chuck their smartphones into the Connecticut River, right? I mean, it's more a question of how are we going to learn to live with this thing?
0: Yeah. When I say break up with your phone, I don't mean throw it out. I mean, just as if you break up with a person, you don't normally mean you're never going to date again. You're actually just saying this relationship's not working for some reason. I want a healthier one. You know, or you want to go from an obsessive relationship where you can't be without your phone to just being friends with your phone. So it's really is all about, you know, sometimes they say like friends with benefits, but it's about set, setting better boundaries. And that requires, and this is what we often forget when we try to make change. You actually have to know what your goal is. You have to decide what you want to be doing with your time as we're talking about, we're spending many hours a day on our phones. But if you don't spend that time on your phone, you're going to end up with a lot of time. And unless you know what you want to do with it, you'll go right back to your phone. So the first thing I always suggest to people is to actually ask yourself, what do you want to spend your time and your attention on? What are some of the things you always say you wish you could do but don't have time for? Identify some of those things. Yeah. Then ask yourself, how's your phone or the time you spend on your phone getting in the way of that? So say it's that you want to read more. Okay. Okay. But then your phone is getting in the way because you're constantly checking Twitter or getting sucked into the news instead of reading. Well, now you have a goal that's much more specific and helpful than I want to spend less time on my phone. Now you know I want to be less distracted, stop checking my phone before bed because I'd like to use that time to read for pleasure. And that's a point from which you can actually make real change because you've given yourself a goal and a real motivation.
1: Yeah, David, what's your advice to people I mean, in a similar way? Uh, if they're going to detach a little bit, how do they do it?
2: You know, we we talk about doing it in small ways. I mean, similar to what Catherine's saying. I mean, turn off notifications is a number one. Uh, as many notifications as you can turn off as possible. Very big advocates on buying something, this old-fashioned device called an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. And actually, Wait, <laughs> <laughs> I actually said at a lecture recently about, I talked to people, a young group, about buying an alarm clock, and I'm not joking. Most people in the room did not know what an alarm clock was. Mm-hmm. The, so the idea of moving your phone from your bedroom or next to your bed to another room where you can charge it, not looking at your phone an hour before bed because of the circadian rhythm changes and the blue light, and there's a lot of other data, not having the phone visually available to you. So if you want to read more, make sure your phone is at a physical sight because your cortisol levels will, dr- will elevate just seeing the phone, even mm-hmm. if it's not on. So these are small things that we can do that can change. And, oh, here's a like big go- one. It's like Gollum and the Precious. Ex- exactly, <laughs> my Precious. Uh, if you're going to have a meal, never have a knife, fork, and a phone on the place setting. Keep your phone in your pocket or pocketbook away from you if you want to experience a meal with your family or friends.
1: Um, Catherine, you know, you encourage people to do some of this stuff and you've got a kind of a blueprint for doing it uh, that's in your book. I should also say we're going to put up one of these uh, uh, tests for yourself and we're, we're sending you a, a mixed message now, but on Twitter and Facebook, we're going to put up one of these tests that you can take. So, um, but I'm also wondering, and you kind of mentioned in the in the book that y- getting other people to do this or to try this is maybe a little bit easier than you might have thought. I mean, it, this is a hard thing to quantify and it's a very unscientific question, Catherine. Catherine. Catherine, but are you sensing out there that maybe all of us are getting a little bit, or not all of us, some of us are getting a little bit more hip to this whole question of like, what is this thing costing me?
0: I think we are actually, because I have a lot of random conversations with people in which they tell me without any prompting that they've uh, quit Facebook or um, deleted Instagram Mm -hmm. or done various things to change their own habits because something feels wrong. I think where people often run into a brick wall is that they think it has to be all or nothing. They think, okay, if I delete Facebook, I can never check Facebook again. And then, you know, sure enough, they're back on Facebook after two days. And then they feel like, oh, all is lost. I broke my word to myself. I'm just giving up entirely. And that's not very productive. This is a very, very difficult task to live a healthy live healthily with a device that's designed to addict you. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, you're not going to try to have three, two, like a drink every weekend. That's not going to be very healthy for you. But in this case, we're going to keep our phones So I tell people, be kind to yourself, think about incremental steps, as David is talking about, and think more broadly about behavior change. So if you are removing a trigger, as we're talking about getting the phone out of the bedroom, removing it from your site, make sure you also give yourself a trigger that makes it easier to do the habit that you're trying to establish. So in the Example of reading, put a book on your bedside table so when you go to reach for that phone, you encounter the book instead, and it's easy for you. Or another thing I recommend people do once they have a goal in mind is to redo their home screen so that it only contains tools, not temptations. So when you open up your phone out of instinct, which you will, first of all, change your lock screen so that it says something like, what do you want to pay attention to? I actually created free downloads. People can use for that phonebreakup.com, but you can just write it down on a piece of paper and take a picture, which is a little speed bump, as I call it, that makes you slow down for a second before you advance to the home screen and go to Instagram, right? And then on your home screen, don't have Instagram, don't have Facebook, have things like uh, Uber. It is very difficult to get sucked into a 20-minute spiral on Uber. <laughs> and, you know, also put, put apps that you actually... That will encourage you to do habits you want to have. So, for example, on my home screen, I've got a guitar tuning app and a meditation app. And some people think it's ironic to use apps to make your life better if you're whatever technology, blah, blah, blah. But technology is a part of our lives, and there's really useful tools. So anyway, when I go to check my phone, which I do – you know, on autopilot sometimes, even though I wrote this whole book about it, right, I, and I can feel my brain twitching. My brain wants to check something. And I can. this is another key thing for people to start to do is pay attention to your body and your brain when you're checking your phone. To go to David's point about the cortisol, it, we are releasing stress hormones and dopamine in response to our phones. And you can start to feel that. And then you can kind of laugh about it. Like, I'll be like, oh, my God, I'm just checking my photos, like just my photo roll because I want to check something. That's very silly. I took those photos. There's nothing new. I'm going to put this phone down now. So anyway, there's many things you can do, and ultimately what I try to do is to use my cravings for my phone and the sight of other people on their phones as a reminder to check in with myself about what I actually want to be doing in that moment.
1: All right. We're going to be wrapping up this segment uh, right here. David Greenfield, though, I could see you know, from your body language you had one or two things you wanted to add to what you Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I think the idea is to kind of create contingencies that sort of encourage real-time living. So you know, you can sort of substitute some of the things you might do ordinarily on the phone with real time activity. So if you normally would text somebody, call them instead. One of the things we know is that when you have a verbal conversation with people, it's far more nutritive and more socially gratifying and socially connecting than sending a text or a a Facebook message. The idea is to try to connect more real time, whether it be on the voice side or in, in person. The one thing that I would
1: sort of say from my own little personal wisdom, and it sort of goes back to that whole issue of overconfidence too, is, like i have an i have this latent passive unconscious assumption that i'm making conscious right now that i'm the sane one right and so like betsy kaplan who the producer of this particular episode is less addicted to this kind of technology than i am and i'm often thinking well betsy kaplan hasn't answer my email for like five hours? What is she some kind of cave woman or something? You know. It, whereas I also, the person that I live with is much more involved with technology and with cell phones and the use of smartphones and all this kind of stuff uh, as a kind of form of recreation than I am. I was thinking, you have a problem. You have an addiction. Of course, I'm right in the middle. That's my myth about myself. So I'm trying to get rid of that myth. I'm clearly um, as messed up as everybody else. Uh, all right, we're going to take a break. We're, we thank very much, we're very grateful to David Greenfield for spending time with us, founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction uh, and the author of Virtual Addiction. I'm going to get the subtitle right. Help for NetHeads, CyberFreaks, and Those Who Love Them. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to have a conversation with the founder of Yonder. You're going to be really interested when you find out what Yonder is.
3: Put down your phone. There's a world flying by.
2: Down your phone
1: and just walk away. There's nothing must today.
2: Remember how they used to tell you that your cell phone could make the gas pumps blow up? <laughs> like, I'm gonna stop texting just because I'm pumping gas right now. <laughs> Okay, but don't gas pumps blow up, like, every day? Who says I caused that
0: one? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has a
2: flipper phone. Our intern is Zandra T-Mobile. The T stands for Nokia. It just does. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Can You Hear Me Now guy. On tomorrow's show, the lives and works of Robin Williams and George Carlin. And now, back to calling.
1: All right, so this uh, uh, next segment is about uh, a new... I guess you'd call it a technology. It just fascinates me. I should say, uh, Catherine Price, author of How to Break Up With Your Phone, is still with us if we need her. But we're uh, also going to talk right now to Graham Dagoni, uh, founder of something called Yonder. And that's, by the way, Y-O-N-D-R. Uh, and, uh, well, Graham, I'm going to let you explain what this is. It's, it's a simple thing that, that addresses a very complicated problem that we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes.
3: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the concept is really simple. Yonder creates phone-free spaces. So, um, you know, conceptually I kind of think of it as a, uh, the equivalent in modern society of a national park system um, where you step into these spaces and what happens there stays there. And the mechanism for doing that is equally simple. It's uh, a locking phone case. So your, your phone is placed into a case. It locks, it's handed back to you. You keep possession of your phone the whole night. But inside that defined area, you're unable to use it.
1: Right, so we say the whole night. Uh, It could be in almost any situation, but just once again, to hammer home what happens here. So I'm walking into a Chris Rock concert uh, performance, or I'm walking into a courtroom in Philadelphia where they don't want me to have access to a smartphone with a camera that I might use for witness intimidation or whatever, or I'm walking into a school like the one uh, in The Simpsons where they don't want me to have this. And rather than take away my smartphone, uh, and then have to f- have me find it somehow at the end of the night, or and wind up complaining that they damaged it while they while they had it in an escrow. There, all they're going to do is put it in this gray locking case and hand it back to me, right?
3: Yeah, that's a perfect description.
1: And, and so. Um, I, well, first of all, um, what happens Let, so let's say somebody goes to a Dave Chappelle show and they don't know about this and, and they are confronted with this, like here you're going to have to do this, I, I mean are people okay with it, or are they disoriented I mean I think Catherine would anticipate them going through a kind of panic and withdrawal, is that what happens?
3: Well the first thing I would say is that about probably 95% of people are completely down with the idea that's the first thing and that's something that's surprising to most people, but the average person, we found, is pretty far along in their understanding of the problem. Maybe not always consciously or intellectually, but they understand it intuitively. Um, So our approach is just to let people know that it's a phone-free show and to kind of indicate that it's probably going to be a positive experience because the vast majority of people really have more fun. And then they have a few just practical questions like, oh, the babysitter's home with the kids. What do I do if I need to reach them? And Oh, you'll still feel your phone vibrate in your pocket. You can go to one of the phone use areas inside the venue. It's the same idea as a smoking area. And you can go check your phone and use it there. So once you do that, everyone's okay. You can see their shoulders drop, body language is good you go from
1: there. You know, Catherine, as you listen to this too, this is, he's making an interesting point and one that I hadn't thought about, which is we can think about our smartphone compulsions as an individual thing, a relationship that we're having with this very drug like dispensary system. But it's also, there's a crowd phenomenon too. Like I don't want to go to a concert where there's all these people holding up their little rectangles, you know, so they can shoot blurry, unusable, stupid uh, videos uh, of this concert. But if they're all doing it, I might do it too, right? It sounds like what Graham is talking about, Catherine, is once, they realize, once people realize nobody's going to do this, then they don't need to do it either.
0: I think there's definitely something freeing about realizing you don't have to record every moment of your life and then post it to social media, and you don't have to be immediately available to everybody. Uh, I think there's actually really something very calming about that. But I also think that it really helps create a society-wide etiquette, which is something we're really missing, or at least begin to jumpstart the conversation where it's like, you know, as Graham's saying instinctively, maybe people know, oh, wait, yeah, that makes sense. But we haven't as a society come to a point where we're we're like we're not going to all use our smartphones in the middle of a meeting or a concert or a show or whatever, whereas we do agree we have – implicitly agreed that we're not going to smoke in them. And it reminds me of an email I got recently from someone who was a director of a children's museum who was really distressed about the fact that many of the patrons, the parents were on the phone the whole time as the kids were in the museum, both from a philosophical standpoint and also from a safety standpoint. And what I was suggesting to him is that the museum put up signs that basically say this is an engagement zone. You know, we ask that you be with your children and do exactly what Graham's saying, Without the technology of, of setting aside a, time, a space like the smoking zone where people can use their phones. But I think a, something like a children's museum would be another example of where something like Yonder would be very, very useful to, to get people to start recognizing what is not isn't appropriate and then practice it.
1: You know, Graham, uh, uh, this was a very personal project uh, for you. It's wound up being a very successful business, but it was funded basically by yourself and your family and anybody else who would uh, help you uh, do this startup. Did you have kind of an aha moment that made you think, oh, no, this is what needs to happen?
3: Well, kind of. I mean, the the idea for me sprung out of kind of my own going down a long rabbit hole and reading a lot of people like, Um, who had been examining the question for a very long time, if the basic question is, what is the role of technology in society? So for me, it was the outgrowth of reading guys like Kierkegaard and Heidegger and Marshall McLuhan and Albert Borgman and Hubert Dreyfus and all these people. Um, But the aha moment, I guess, was um, kind of, you know, at a music festival and watching a couple strangers recording another stranger and post the video to YouTube and just taking that individual situation, separate of what we do in education and everything else, and just building that out logically, it's pretty clear that the, the paradigm of thought that kind of um, exists in Silicon Valley and a lot of Western culture in general, that, and the assumption that everything is going to become more connected and more visible in every aspect of society, everywhere, all the time, it doesn't really make sense.
1: Um, Right. We we should say we should just say for purposes of elucidation, the the thing that you saw was some guy at a concert who was inebriated or whatever, and kind of dancing in an inebriated way. And these other two people who weren't his friends or anything like that, using their phones to shoot video of him and post it up on the internet. And so now that I know that you've got this great background in philosophy, Graham. So those are people using another person as an uh, as a means rather than an end. Uh, We're supposed to be treat people as ends in themselves, not as means for something else. So in, in, in you're already seeing a kind of degradation of value, very similar to some of the stuff that Catherine and David have talked about here, uh, that's, that's happening in these public spaces, right?
3: Well, yeah. And it's a big question. I mean, it gets down to the heart of what is technology itself, and is it the constant drive to make things faster, easier, more available all the time? And if that's the case, the question I think is, how does the smartphone and how does that philosophy or that... Um, that idea applied to the idea of social human social interaction does it even make any sense does the idea of faster easier communication is that a goal that we're actually setting and is you know conversation over the phone and everything it represents not just that but endless ability to record and play things back and surveil people what implications does that have on society so yeah, I, I, I guess looking at all of those factors, for me, kind of boiling it down to what is a practical way that as a society we can approach the problem, knowing that it takes time for etiquette to change, it seems reasonable to approach it through creating spaces where you know, when you step into that space, what happens there stays there, and everyone's kind of encouraged to do that and gets a gentle nudge.
1: Um, Catherine, we're running out of time, but did you have a really quick question for Graham? Well, I was wondering if you can get this on
0: the individual level, although as we're speaking, it seems that it requires there to be a space defined as the, I don't know if you're calling it the yonder zone or what, but, I mean, is there a way that people can take advantage of your technology if they're not, for example, making an appearance in the, uh, in, the in the Philadelphia court system?
3: <laughs> yeah. No, we work with tons of schools. We do courts. We're at weddings. We're, we get contacted a ton by individual households, and we're kind of, that's the next step for us. Um, so we're hoping to be there soon. But, yeah, that idea of kind of we're used by People in every context, um, so it's not just shows or courts or schools. So, yeah, we're open for any kind of application. We're we see ourselves as facilitators.
1: Ooh, Catherine, so. Catherine, I know you're fascinated by uh, etiquette. Now I'm wondering, you know, <laughs> they have yonder at a wedding, and you have to explain that probably in the invitation or some point. You know, we're going to ask you to put your uh, cell phones and your smartphones in this little pouch. Uh, I mean, it's it's an example, Catherine, of how we don't have. the the common understanding that etiquette essentially is.
0: Well, it's like, why why is the default um, the assumption that you could be on your phone for the whole time posting pictures? I think (laughs) about it like the quiet car. Why is that an exception instead of the default? Why is it you have to go to a special sequestered car on Amtrak to not be disturbed by people around you on their phones? So, I mean, I actually went to a wedding where they asked and they did have to say it, which is crazy, in the program. Please do not take pictures and post them to Twitter. We're very private people. And then they made up for that. I mean, not that they would have to, but they were like, we're having a professional photographer. We'll give you access to those photos. But please be with us. Be present on our special day and experience it with us instead of uh, separating yourself. I mean, every time you check in on your phone, you're checking out of whatever you're experiencing.
1: All right. Dr- Graham uh, Dagoni, you're getting at the last question. Once again, founder of Yonder, Y-O-N-D-R. You need to know more about this. Um, you're kind of living your own reality, right? You don't actually have a smartphone.
3: Oh, oh, that's true. I, I have a flip phone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and so, say why that is. I mean, maybe it's obvious, but, I mean, uh, once again, somebody who's that deep into Kierkegaard and Heidegger, do you have like a 45-second uh, a explanation of why you don't have a smartphone?
3: Well, at one level, I think that uh, creating limits in anything, form and limits, is a good thing to do in life, and that um, a recognition of that kind of forces other things to uh, fall into place. At another level, maybe the more important I would say that staring at a screen all day and interpreting the world primarily through a screen and having information presented and collated uh, to you by someone else might have something to do with a lot of stuff going on uh, that's not so good in the modern world. So I kind of choose to take a back seat to that, I guess. And also, there's just a lot of, I think, in terms of visual and auditory stimulation at a vibrational level, I think kind of staring at a screen all day tinkers with people's basic faculties and... It might take time for the data to come out, but anecdotally and common sense wise, that that seems to be, you know, make sense to me.
1: All right. We're going to have to wrap it there. Thank you, Graham and Thank you, Catherine Price, author of How to Break Up With Your Phone. Catherine, email Betsy Kaplan and tell her what show we're doing together next. But she won't email. (laughs) She won't read me back for like six hours. It's going to be like at least six hours. You're going to be just just dying there. Uh, Anyway, thanks to everybody. And we'll be back tomorrow.
2: that's
0: where I'm bound.
2: Give us the password to the suitcase or we'll burn your house down.
0: It was such a nice house.
2: Give us the password or we'll expose your browser history.
0: I can explain. I work for the Colin McEnroe show, so...
2: Give us the password or we'll snap your phone in half.
0: No, okay. One, two, three, four, five... Five.